0: Welcome to the Arise Church podcast. At Arise, we're a community of imperfect people pursuing and experiencing a transformative relationship with Jesus and one another. For more information, you can find us online at ariseonline.org. Thanks for listening. Go ahead and have a seat where you are today. So we're ending our series on called Take Heart. This morning, it's also my last time to speak here at Arise, so the elders are nervous, wondering what is he going to say today. Rest easy. The only thing you have to worry about is I have saved the most content of any message that I've given at Arise for Today, we're going to cover three passages of Scripture, 70 verses, so buckle up. This is going to be fun, but we're going to move along quickly. Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. Find your way there in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, the words going to, will be here on the screen. If you're new to this story or maybe new to Scripture altogether, let me catch you up to where we are in the Scripture here. The central character in this story in the end of Genesis is this guy named Joseph. Joseph, who was the son of Jacob? He was the second youngest of 12 sons of Jacob. The Bible tells us that he was the favored or the favorite son of his father Jacob. When Joseph was a young kid, he had this gift that emerged in his life, this ability, this God given gift to interpret dreams. And because of this gift and because of this favoritism that his father showed toward him, um, it stirred hatred in the hearts of his brothers, so much so that when Joseph was 17 years old, he was thrown in a pit, he was sold into slavery. The brothers went back to their father and told their father, Jacob, that his favored son had been killed by a wild animal. So Joseph is sold into slavery. He's sent to Egypt. While he's in Egypt, he's wrongly accused of assault by his master's wife. He is wrongly thrown into prison for something that he didn't do, and uh, the scholars believe that he was in prison for around 13 years for this crime that he didn't commit. But while he was in prison, God's hand was on him because because of God's ordination, God placed in this prison cell with Joseph these two men. And these two men that were there in his relationship with them, this, this gift that he had as a child, this ability to interpret dreams re-emerged and he interpreted the dreams of these men that were in this prison cell with him. Years past, these two men uh, leave prison. Joseph is still there. And one of these men that shared this prison cell with Joseph um, through a wild series of events ends up standing before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and um, he is there, and Pharaoh tells this individual that he has this dream that keeps coming to him and that he needs interpreted. This man who shared this cell with Joseph, who had forgotten about Joseph, all of a sudden remembered Joseph. Joseph is then summoned from prison to come and stand before Pharaoh to interpret this dream. This God-given gift surfaces in this moment, and Joseph rightly interprets this dream of Pharaoh, telling of this impending famine that's going to hit the land of Egypt and the surrounding lands for seven years. Not only does Joseph rightly interpret this dream, but he also lays out a plan to spare Egypt in this famine. And so, because of this plan and because of his ability to interpret dreams, Joseph begins to make his way up the political ladder in Egypt. Through a wild series of events, Joseph is essentially the second most powerful man. He's like the governor of Egypt behind Pharaoh. And this famine hits the land, and years pass and food becomes scarce. It not only hits Egypt, but it hits the surrounding lands. It hits the nation of Israel, the promised land as well. And so because of this, Joseph's family, his 11 brothers, and his fathers are suffering because of this famine, and they make their way to Egypt to seek food and to seek help in the midst of this famine. And all of a sudden, These brothers, these 11 brothers, are standing before their brother Joseph that they had sold into slavery. Their brother Joseph, who they told their father had been killed um, by a wild animal, asking him for assistance. But they don't know that this is their brother that they're standing before. So Joseph, in this moment, because of his position in the government, has the ability to either bless or to curse these brothers that threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery. To bless or to curse his brothers because with a snap of a finger, he could have his brothers put to death because of the wrongs that they had committed against him some 20 or 22 years before that. But in this book of beginnings, this book of Genesis, we see instead of judgment, we see grace because Joseph chooses to bless his brothers. He chooses instead of judgment, he chooses to extend grace to his brothers who had wronged him. And as you read the scripture, especially as you read the Old Testament, one of the things that I want to ask you to do from this day forward is to see Jesus in all of the text because this picture here of what Joseph does, this grace that he extends to his brothers is simply like a big bright neon sign that is pointing us to the person of Jesus Christ. This is a picture of Jesus found in the very first, Bible, very first book of the Bible. Our Jesus who goes before us in the famine of our sin and extends grace to us instead of mercy. So in this book of beginnings, we see grace, we see mercy, we see Jesus. So as we make our way through these 70 verses of Scripture today, I want to give you some handlebars to hold on to. And these handles to hold on to as we make our way through this text are the handles of God's plan and God's promise. God's plan and God's promise. So hold on to those as we make our way through the text and see how God's plan and God's promise emerges in this story. So we'll, we'll see how the text speaks to these ideas. We'll think about it, and then we'll come back and unpack these two ideas of God's plan and God's promise at the end of the text. Genesis chapter 45, beginning at verse 16. We're going to read through the text. I'm going to unpack it a little bit, and then I'll make some application at the end. Does that sound good? We sure? Okay. Verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers... Do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take the wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So Pharaoh is telling Joseph to tell his brothers and his, and his father and their family that, hey, what you think you have in the promised land is. Great, but it can't compare to what you're going to have here in Egypt. Just leave all that stuff behind because what you're going to have here is so much better. Verse 21 The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes. Hold on to that. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. Interesting phrase, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt, and his heart, Jacob's heart, the father who thought his son had been dead for 22 years, became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father was revived, and Israel said, "'It is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive, and I will go see him before I die.'" All right, let's unpack this scripture for just a minute. Now, if you're new to this story, you may not know that Jacob has two names. Jacob has his birth name, Jacob, but then he also has this name given to him by God, which is Israel. So in this text, you, hear, you see this kind of back and forth of Jacob and Israel. As we read this story, he goes by both names, so don't let that confuse you. In verse 22, it says that uh, Joseph gave his brothers a gift of a change of clothes. Now that may be kind of weird reading that through our cultural lens. Why would why would Joseph give them a change of clothes? Were they just simply dirty from the travels and they needed to look better on their way back? Um, through our cultural lens, it may seem that way. But historically, this was a very important symbolic gesture on behalf of Joseph to his brothers. But because what this symbolized, when you would give someone a gift of clothes back in ancient Israel, it was a way of saying all is forgiven that the slate has been wiped clean, that we are going to restart our relationship. So what Joseph is saying here is, hey, what happened 22 years ago was 22 years ago. I forgive you. And so symbolically in giving him those clothes, he says, the slate is wiped clean. We have a new start as brothers. We have a new start as families. Again, this points us to Jesus. The theologian Charles Hodge said this, When Jesus died on the cross, he said, Our sins were imputed to Christ, and his righteousness is imputed to us. Jesus bore our sins, and we are clothed in his righteousness. Because on the cross, the slate was wiped clean for those who would believe. Verse 24 is interesting because it says, Do not quarrel. So Joseph sends his brothers away, and he says, Hey, do not quarrel on the way. Now, being summertime, this makes me think back to my childhood and my trips as a kid with my family. And uh, we would take a six-hour trip or maybe a 15-hour trip from Texas to uh, Colorado. And I remember being crammed in the back seat as a seven-year-old in between my 10-year-old sister and my four-year-old sister. And I was crammed like a sardine in this back seat of this car between my sisters for this 15-hour ride. And what did my mom say to me before we took off? Guys, keep your hands to yourself. And do not fight. So for this seven-year-old boy, squished in between his sisters, they might as well have asked me to walk on water. Because this was not going to happen, okay? This is not the kind of quarreling that this is talking about here. The, the word here is it's not the best translation. It's used in, actually, Genesis 45, verse 5, when Joseph said, And now do not be distressed or angry. That word distressed is the same word that's used here for quarrel. So what he's saying here is do not be disturbed, do not be upset, do not be worried about the things that happened 22 years ago as you travel back. And then when his brothers make their way back to their father and they tell Jacob, they tell Israel that, that his son is alive, it says in verse 26 that Jacob's heart was numb. That Jacob's heart was numb. What does that mean? That's like a Hebrew idiom that was used in the text. It's like how we would say today that our heart skipped a beat or that our breath was taken away, that his breath was taken away by this news of his son. And we have to stop and pause here a moment and reflect on the text, reflect on this verse, because Jacob here. Who had given up any hope that his son was alive, who 22 years ago believed the lies of his sons, that his favored son Joseph had been killed by a wild animal, is figuratively in this moment having to welcome and having to receive his son back from the dead. This death and resurrection here that we see, this death of Joseph in Jacob's eyes and this resurrection some 22 years later here is just once again a prefiguring of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jacob's response here. His heart becoming numb, just being in disbelief before his spirit is revived, prefigures the disciples' response when the women come to them and tell, him, tell them that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. It says in the, in, the, in the Gospel of Luke that they didn't believe him, that they were shocked, that they were in awe, and that they didn't believe the words of these women They were both stunned, both Jacob and the disciples, in disbelief. And then it says they're finally filled with this unspeakable joy at the news that they had heard. And in a sense, their faith reorients them to the truth at hand. Chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry them. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all of his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought into Egypt." All right, verse 3 here, it tells about this anxiety or this fear that Jacob has that God speaks to, this fear of going into Egypt. And the question for us today is, why would Jacob be afraid of going into Egypt? Well, there may be a couple of answers to this question. First, Jacob here, the text tells us, is 130 years old. 130 years old. Now, if there's anything that I know about 130-year-olds, they don't like to move, Okay? They kind of like to stay where they are. So, like the ideal situation for a 130 year old person is not to load up everything you, you own, throw them on the back of some con- uh, donkeys, and make your way through the desert to this new land. So, that could be one of the issues there. Also, because he is old, because he is 130 years old, he doesn't want to die in Egypt. In ancient Israel and in the ancient Hebrew tradition, it would have been very important. For um, Jacob to be buried near his ancestors, near his father Isaac, near his grandfather uh, Abraham. So that could be one reason as well. He could also just simply be afraid of going into Egypt. His grandfather, when he, Abraham, when Abraham went into Egypt, he lied about who his wife was. He sinned greatly. He got into great trouble with some of the political leaders of the day. When Jacob's father, Isaac, was about to go into Egypt, God stopped Isaac and said, do not go into that land. So he had the testimony of his grandfather, Abraham, the testimony of his father, Isaac, that could also be weighing on him and causing this fear and this anxiety in his life, but I actually don't think that either of those are the biggest reasons, and I'm going to hold off on what I think the biggest reason why he was afraid to go into Egypt until we get to the end of this morning. So hold on to that. Verse four, it says that Joseph's hand will close your eyes, uh, and in the ancient world, this was a right, this was a privilege that was usually reserved for the eldest, the eldest son, or the eldest relative would close the the eyes of the deceased. And so what God is saying here to uh, Jacob is that, hey, any fear that you have about this trek, this travel that you're going to make through the desert, any fear that you may not see your son Joseph, let me put that to rest for you. Because you're going to see your son that you thought was dead. And not only are you going to see him, but he is going to be with you when you die. His hands will close your eyes. Uh, Verses 8 through 26 is just simply a long list of genealogies. My blessing to you today is that I'm not going to read through those. Um, You can read those on your own time when you want to go to sleep. But whenever you read a genealogy, we need to see that most genealogies in scripture, they are there with a purpose. And they're usually, especially in this text, the purpose is it's a veiled story of God's blessing and what this genealogy shows us in verse in chapter 46 was that Israel was growing very very quickly they are only two generations removed from Abraham this promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and it says now that the men of Israel that went into Egypt were about 70. That doesn't include children. That doesn't include women. That doesn't include any servants. So two generations removed from this initial blessing made to this singular man who didn't have any children, this, this nation is now numbering about 200 people. So this genealogy is simply expressing that God's plan, that God's promise is being fulfilled. Let's skip to chapter 46, verse 27. It says, And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy. And that's what we just talked about. And he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face, and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up to tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation, you shall say... Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Let's stop there. Verse 28: Israel, Jacob, sends Judah to greet his brother Joseph. If you know the story, if you know the story of this family, Judah, wicked, sinful Judah, is the one who is sent. To welcome his brother. Wicked, sinful Judah, who had uh, betrayed his brother 22 years ago and plotted against him, and is the reason, one of the primary reasons, that he was thrown into the pit and sold into slavery, is the one that sent out to welcome his brother. The most unlikely of brothers, and what this is showing us is that God is working grace and mercy and forgiveness into this story and into this family. And then in verse 29, we see this beautiful reunion between father. And son. Between father and son, Jacob, who's had like Elton John's candle in the wind on repeat for 22 years, runs up and greets his son Joseph, who he thought was dead. It says that Joseph fell on his father's neck and it says he wept for a while. It's interesting to note that the text tells us that Joseph is weeping, but Jacob is not. We know that Jacob's heart is filled with joy and relief in this moment, but there are no tears. The story of Jacob's life is a troubled one, and at this point, he's 130 years old. He's weathered. He's been through many ups and many, many downs, much turmoil, and to an extent, we can imagine that he's just like, he doesn't have any tears left to cry, and in this moment, there's just this kind of spiritual, uh, physical, and emotional exhale in the scene as he holds his son, his long-lost son, in his arms. In the New Testament, what father do we see welcoming his son back? We see this in the parable of the prodigal son. This son who had run off and taken everything or taken his inheritance and run away and who had sinned greatly against his father in the name of his family. But in this story, Joseph, who had done no wrong, but who had been sinned against, the father of the prodigal did not know what his son had done did not know all that he had gotten up to, had seemingly forgotten the betrayal that his son had had done against him by asking for his inheritance. It said that this father, of this prodigal, welcomed him back, clothed him with the finest robe, put his ring on his finger, and rejoiced over his son who had returned home. For us today, our Father, our Heavenly Father, knows all that we have done. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. Of our life, but the scripture reminds us time and time again that despite what we've done, despite our rebellion, despite our disobedience, that our Father welcomes us back and rejoices over every child that returns home. These pictures of God, these pictures of fathers in, in the scripture, they're very intentional they're there they're not there without purpose because God is doing and what God is doing in this book of beginnings, the very first book of the scripture, all the way through Malachi and into the Gospels and the New Testament and the story of Jesus, God is painting a picture of himself for us and for his people to know what a loving father is like and to know that our loving father welcomes us back if we turn and come to him. God wants us to see through this picture the love, the passion, the pathos that he has for his children. Verse 30, Jacob says, let me die. And if you know anything about Jacob, you know that he was a pretty dramatic fellow. So here again, once again, he's kind of a drama queen. And he says, let me die in this moment. Let me rest in peace. Now that I've seen my son And I know that the promise that was given uh, to my grandfather Abraham will be fulfilled and carried on because Joseph, because of his position and the blessing that God has given him, is going to allow our nation to be sustained in the midst of this famine. That Joseph or that Jacob can now rest in peace. It's interesting, this let me die phrase let me die and rest in peace because I have seen the Son. I have seen that God's promise is going to be. Fulfilled and is going to carry on. We see a similar picture and a portrait and phrase in the New Testament. A Simeon goes into the temple in Luke chapter 2, verse 25. And it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, simply waiting for the promise of Abraham, the coming of the Messiah, to be fulfilled. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He sees the infant Jesus, he sees the Messiah that's been giving, given to Israel, and what does he say? Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. For Simeon, the consolation, the salvation he's speaking about was Jesus, the Messiah. For Jacob, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 46, the salvation, the consolation was in his son Joseph and the fact that this family was going to be preserved in the midst of a, of a famine that was ravaging the land. Verses 31 through 34 are very interesting because it's just Joseph giving his instructions to his brothers about what they are to say and what they are not to say when they make their way into Pharaoh's court. We see that Joseph displays a ton of wisdom in this moment because he's very familiar with the Egyptian system and how the Pharaoh operates and how that culture operates. Uh, We know that country folk were not welcome in Egypt, and Joseph's brothers were a bit redneckish, if we're being honest. Uh, They're the kind of guys that would be in the backyard dipping skulls, shooting bottle rockets off while they watch NASCAR wearing their Green Bay Packers jerseys, jean shorts, and Crocs. (laughs) And if I just described you, I'm sorry. Um, But Joseph here knows who they are, he knows kind of the way they act, and so he's trying to help them when they go stand before the most powerful man in the world to know what to do and know not what to do. It says that um, the Egyptians thought that, that sheep and that shepherds were an abomination. Uh, what they thought was that sheep were the dirtiest of all animals, and by association, shepherds that tended to sheep were therefore dirty as well. So Joseph tells them don't tell Joseph tells his brothers when you go into Pharaoh's court don't say that you're shepherds or that you're keepers of sheep but say that you're keepers of livestock. So he's kind of twisting their their story just a little bit. He's not lying necessarily, but he's focusing on something that's going to help them in turning the truth just a little bit, focusing on one part of the truth to help his family. But what we notice here is this tension that seems to be building. This tension that seems to be building between Egypt and the nation of Israel because the, the, Isra- the Israelis, the Israelites, they were not children of the empire. They didn't know how to assimilate into this culture. Let's see what happens. Chapter 47, verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flock. And herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five and presented them to Pharaoh. Just five. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan, and now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession in the land, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's households with food according to the number of their dependents." All right, in verse 1 here, let's break it down. It says, he came in with their flocks and their herds. And they, they did this intentionally. They came in, and this is a way to express to Pharaoh that their family entertains no social or political ambitions because of their social status, because of their occupation. And because they were keepers of livestock, Joseph wanted Pharaoh to know this because there would be no way that the Pharaoh would allow these Canaanites Uh, these Israelites, to marry an Egyptian. So Joseph wanted Pharaoh to see this, to preserve this nation from marrying in to this pagan nation of Egypt. In verse 2, it says that he took five of of his 11 brothers. Five of, of his 11 brothers. We don't know which five they were. We don't know exactly why he took those five, but we all have that crazy sibling, right? We all have that crazy uncle or something like that. So you can imagine Joseph kind of going down the line, looking at his brothers, and he's like, okay, which one of you have all your teeth? All right, you're good. Uh, You know, which one of you, you're not going to Charlie Brown this thing whenever you get in there. So he took his five, and he goes in to meet with Pharaoh. It says that Pharaoh put them in charge of the royal livestock. That these people that he just met, who just made their way into this land, and you have to imagine that as the most powerful nation in the world at this time, the fact that this famine had hit the surrounding lands, that there were floods of people coming in from outside wanting assistance, but for some reason Pharaoh looks at these people, these Canaanites, these uh, the, the the family of Joseph, <clears throat> and he says he puts them in charge of the royal livestock, giving supervision over his possession. This is an acknowledgement from Pharaoh that this nation can advance themselves in his administration. This is a privilege, this is a protection that at this time would have never been given to a foreigner. So again, we see God's protection in their life here. Verse seven is amazing. It says that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And here we see this collision of the Lord of Egypt and the father of of promises come together. Jacob is the one who blesses Pharaoh. We know historically that this text was written centuries later uh, to encourage uh, the Israelites, to encourage this fledgling nation in the midst of their exodus. It was an encouragement to Israel of God's plan and protection and promise during whatever struggle or battle that they were in. It was also an encouragement to the early church when they faced persecution. And it's an encouragement for us today as well that as we stand before the powers and the principalities of this world, just as the original blessing to Abraham, that blessing is ours today. God told Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless the nations. And so for us, as we stand facing Whatever obstacle it is in our life, whatever power, whatever influence is in our world, in our situation, in our, cir- in our circle, that God wants us to know and believe that God has blessed us as His chosen people so that we might be a blessing also. Verse 9, you see that Jacob doesn't exalt himself over Pharaoh, but one thing is very interesting. He does not refer to himself as Pharaoh's servant, as his sons did three times. When his sons came into Pharaoh's court, the five sons, three times they referred to themselves as the servant of Pharaoh. But Jacob refused to do that. And then he says that few and evil are the numbers of the days of his life. Um, Evil might be translated as difficult there is difficult or hard. And Jacob here is kind of confessing his humble state and the difficulty of his years and all that he had battled. You have to imagine in this moment, as Pharaoh asks him this question, his mind races back to when he tricked his brother Esau out of the birthright that was rightfully his. Or when his sons went and destroyed an entire village over the dispute of their sister. Or 22 years before, when his favored son, When he was told that he was killed by a wild animal and for 22 years he had been left weeping and mourning the loss of his son. Those are just three examples of the difficulties that this man had faced, the sorrow he's wrestled with. And then this word in this place, Goshen, pops up time and time again. A Goshen is in the northeast part of the delta of Egypt, and if you were to look at like a Google map image today, and you look at the northeast portion, the portion of Egypt, that northern part, northeastern part of the delta there, it's the most fertile part of all of Egypt. And today, if you look at a Google ma- image map, you'll see that the southern part of Egypt is this arid desert area where nothing can grow, but this area called Goshen is the most fertile area in all of Egypt. The land, And so what Pharaoh is saying here is not that you can just, you can inhabit Egypt, but you're going to be sent down to the desert and good luck there. He's saying that not only can you be here and be welcomed here and be given charge of the royal livestock, but I'm going to give you the best of the land. What he calls the fat of the land earlier in the text here. The one part that would thrive and flourish over the next seven years of famine. So instead of starving, instead of being poverty stricken, Israel, God's people find refuge and abundance in this famine. We just see God's provision all over this. So as we uh, began this message today, I asked you to kind of hold on to the handlebars, the handles of God's plan and God's promise. So I want to look at those two ideas in light of this text, as we end here this morning, and I'm going to go back to the question I asked earlier: Why was Jacob afraid to go into Egypt? And I said that the biggest reason I was going to withhold until uh, the end. Uh, if we fast forward 400 years, we make our way into the next book of the Bible, which is the book of Exodus. And in Genesis or in Exodus, chapter one, 400 years later, we learn that Israel, this nation that is now about 200, has multiplied into a nation of millions. And that there's now a new Pharaoh, and this new Pharaoh is not aware of Joseph. This new Pharaoh is not acquainted with this relationship that Joseph had with the old Pharaoh. And this nation that has now multiplied into the millions has become very wealthy, has become very influential. And this new Pharaoh was threatened by their influence and by their power, so much so that he decides to enslave this nation. And this story leads us to Moses. But why or what does this have to do with Jacob's fear about going into Egypt? Well, it has to do with Jacob's fear because all of this was prophesied to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. Whenever God comes to Abraham and makes him this promise that I'm going to bless you so that you can bless the nations and I'm going to make your name great and I'm going to make you the father of many nations, he said that something is going to happen. In the midst of this, it's not going to be all sunshine and roses, that there's going to be a dark spot in the nation of, or the history of this nation. In Genesis 15, verse 13, going back to the story of Abram, it says this, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, or will be slaves there, and they will be afflicted For 400 years, but I will bring judgment on that nation, or the the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So, this was prophesied by God to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. This is part of God's plan all along. God promised Abraham land, God promised Abraham offspring, but he warned them that for 400 years, They were going to be slaves and captives in a land that was not their own. He said, but after that time, I'm going to bring you out of that situation and bring you back home again. So what's the takeaway for us in this? That nothing in all of history, nothing in the history of Israel, nothing in the history of the early church, nothing in our history today is a surprise to God. That in a strange and and mysterious and often hidden way that God superintends history and the actions of humanity and the very details of our lives and the lives of his people for the maximum display of his glory. As difficult as those 400 years in slavery and captivity would be, this was part of God's plan. That God was going to allow them to go through that. He was going to allow them to go through 40 years on the back end of that wandering in the wilderness, but he promised that I will bring you back home again. So that's God's plan. What's God's promise in this story? The promise of God here is a fatherly promise that he issues to Jacob, that he issues to Joseph, and that he also gives for us today. Back to chapter 46, verse 3 and 4. In the midst of Jacob's anxiety, in the midst of Jacob's fear and uncertainty about the future, what does God say to him? He says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand will close your eyes. In the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of his doubt and uncertainty here, God says, do not be afraid. I will go with you, and I will bring you back up again. Do not be afraid. I will go with you, and I will bring you back home again. The point for us today in this is that we are not changed by making promises to God. We are not changed by making promises to God. We're changed by believing God's promises to us. Do not be afraid. I will go with you, and I will bring you back home again. And I think those three phrases are a summary of the entire Bible. That God will be with us. That God has made us for himself and for his glory, and God has made us for a relationship to dwell with him so we should not be afraid, because God will be with us, and through whatever situation that we're in, he will bring us out of that, and he will bring us back home again. I think that this is the summary of the entire Bible. Listen as I kind of race through some of these scriptures to help support this idea In Genesis chapter 1, God creates Adam and he creates Eve with a desire to commune, to dwell with them in the garden. But this communion, this dwelling relationship is broken in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sin and they're exiled from the garden. But God seeks to reestablish that relationship, that communion with his people. In Genesis chapter 15, when he comes to Abraham and he says, I will be with you. He says, I will make a family For you And I will make your name great. I will bless you so that you can bless the world. God makes the people. God adopts the people for himself to reestablish that relationship. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God is reminding his people constantly of this promise. I will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans in despair or separated from my presence. At the end of Genesis, as we just read with Jacob and his fear and anxiety, God says, I will be with you. I will go with you and I will bring you back home again. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, Moses is standing before this burning bush and this God reveals himself to Moses and he tells Moses to go and stand before Pharaoh, this Pharaoh who has enslaved his people, the most powerful man in the world, in the history of the world up until that point. And, jo- and Moses says, well, who am I to stand before Pharaoh and tell him these things? And God says... I will be with you and my presence with you is a sign of who I am and the promise that I have for you. After Moses' death, when Joshua is standing at the banks of the Jordan River, after 40 years of wilderness wanderings, he's got this nation standing at his back. What does God say to to, um, Joshua to say to the people of Israel? He says, do not be afraid do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you, with you wherever you go. And the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43 2 says to the nation of Israel, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. And this I will be with you promise finds its pinnacle in the person. In the coming of Jesus Christ, Jesus, whose name was Emmanuel, which meant what? God with us. Jesus, who was sent to the cross, who endured the suffering that we deserve, but overcame the grave, overcame sin on our behalf so that we could have freedom from the bondage of sin. And he resurrects from the grave and he comes to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. And what does he say? He says, Behold, I am what? With you always to the end of the age. Weeks later, God pours out his Holy Spirit to his church, to his people. God is now with his people in spirit form. And as the Bible ends, John is painting a picture of what eternity in heaven is going to be like as we stand in heaven with our, our, our sovereign God, with the Son, with the Spirit. What does God say or what does John say that eternity is going to look like. In Revelation 12 or 21.3, he says this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. In the beginning of the story, in Genesis chapter 1, we see that God has this desire to be with his people, to dwell with his people. And as John paints a picture of what eternity is going to be like as we stand before God and we worship at the throne, what is it? That God is with his people, beginning to end. We see this relationship. We see this God who pursues us, this God that wants to dwell with us, this God that promises his presence to be with us, this God that has a plan, and this God that has a promise for his people, this promise that is carried from Abraham to you, this promise that reached its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So as I leave Arise, I want to leave you with a couple of things. One thing I want to leave you with is that as you read the text, don't wait until the New Testament to see Jesus. When you read the Old Testament, please see Jesus in all of the text. See how everything is setting the stage for his arrival. See Jesus in the story. And don't just see Jesus in the New Testament either. See where Jesus is working in your life today in the life of this church moving forward. And then also just to realize that we have a God whose ultimate purpose is his glory and his desire to be with you. The God that says, do not be afraid. I will be what? I will be with you, and I will bring you back home again. No matter what uncertainty you face, no matter where you stand in life, No matter how much you wonder of what this is going to look like, how things are going to play out in a certain scenario, we have a promise from God that has never faltered for thousands of years to this day. Do not be afraid. I will be with you. It may be tough. It may be difficulty. There may be captivity. There may be wilderness wanderings. But at the end of it all, I will bring you out of this. I will bring you back home again, and I will be with you through it all. Let's pray. God, we are humbled as a people, or I'm humbled today by that simple truth that our sovereign creator God, a God who ordained all of this, this universe that we call home this earth that we get to live on, these people that we get to have relationship with. God, that you, in the midst of your glory, in the midst of your splendor, in the midst of your sovereignty, that you have this desire to be with us. God, and may we not only see your withness in those moments when things are going well, when life seems to be clicking along as we had hoped and we had planned and as we had dreamed. But God, we actually ask that you be more present, God, and that you make yourself known to us when things aren't going as we had planned. God, may we believe that you desire to be with us and in that reality of your presence that there is no space for fear. God, that your presence snuffs out any fear that may exist. So God, where I pray today, where there is any fear in the hearts of those in this church, where there is any fear in this church right now, God, may it be replaced with your peace. God, may it be replaced with a peace that is only realized because of your presence. God, make yourself known to us. Right now, Father, we ask that. God, and as you do, we commit as your people to submit to your plans, to follow and to serve you faithfully wherever you may lead. In your name we pray, amen.